This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. College to Congress is a nonprofit that is dedicated to making Congress look like America, more diverse, more inclusive, and thus more effective. The way we do that is by helping low-income students from across the nation. Audrey Henson is founder and CEO of College to Congress, and despite their phenomenal success, diversity on the Hill... We're actually doing worse. Coming up in this episode of Colors... An explosive report reveals a connection between white supremacist and some police departments. It's not just that white supremacists might join police departments, but that people in police departments might join white supremacist organizations. Former FBI agent Michael German has seen it from the inside out. As an FBI agent preparing to go undercover in white supremacist groups, all of us working on the operation were warned that we have to be very careful about who we talk with within the law enforcement community about this operation because it was well known that there were individuals within these organizations who had sympathies with white supremacist groups. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. Hey, Chris, how are you today? Hi, JJ. Good. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Uh, We've got a great guest today. As always, we have great guests. On this program with us today is Michael German. He's a fellow at the Brennan Center for Liberty and Justice. He has written something that is both startling and, and very informative at the same time. He wrote this piece about how white supremacists have infiltrated police departments across America. And he wrote that piece for the Brennan Center. It was picked up by some newspapers. Um, Mr. German is a former FBI agent. And, sir, it's my understanding that you were uh, actually one of your jobs early on in your career was to infiltrate white supremacists. Welcome to the program. And is that true? Uh, Hi. Thanks again for having me. Uh, Yes, it is true. In, In 1992, Uh, The FBI asked me to work undercover in neo-Nazi groups that were seeking to leverage the civil unrest following the uh, police beating of Rodney King to to instigate a broader race war. So I was undercover for about 14 months in white supremacist groups across the U.S. and really across uh, or in Los Angeles, but across the country as well. Well, this is a remarkable coincidence because Chris and I, almost 30 years ago, began our association in terms of doing a a public dialogue on race on a program on the radio called Black and White here in Washington that was born out of those Rodney King riots. How did your work infiltrating white supremacist groups at the time 
inf- inform what you've been writing about recently regarding the concern that we still have white supremacists uh, to deal with that may be involved with police? Uh, so with regard to this latest report, it was pretty direct. I mean, as, as an FBI agent preparing to go undercover in white supremacist groups, we worked that through the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which involved a lot of different law enforcement agencies. And all of us working on the operation were warned that we have to be very careful about who we talk with within the law enforcement community about this operation, because it was well known that there were uh, individuals within these organizations who had sympathies with white supremacist groups. And uh, it was just accepted as a known fact. Um, and, And then after I left the FBI in 2006, a document came out. So it was something that I could talk about publicly. Uh, And then again, in 2015, another document was leaked where the FBI was similarly warning its agents working domestic terrorism investigations now more than 20 years later uh, that that the potential uh, or that they often the subjects of these investigations often have contacts with law enforcement uh, and and, uh, instructing them to uh, be careful in how they uh, shared information about their investigations because of this problem. And uh, having become a civil liberties advocate after my FBI career, uh, it's shocking to me that the law enforcement continues to warn itself internally about this problem, but there's no uh, strategy to protect the pro- the the public from white supremacist police officers. Well, if if I yes, if I read your your piece correctly, um, you say that white supremacists have infiltrated police forces around the country. That they does that mean that they become officers? Is I mean, what what exactly? Bring it. Just let's forget about uh, the nineteen ninety two time. Let's just talk right. about now. And the, which, and when I read it, it made it sound like there were a whole bunch of white supremacists that had somehow gotten on police forces all over the country. Is that true? Uh, so, so I, I picked up the language from the FBI documents, and and it, it you know it, it's important that we're explicit about how we're using this language. What the the report on the infiltration of law enforcement by white supremacists that the FBI wrote makes clear is that it's not just that white supremacists might join police departments, but that people in police departments might join white supremacist organizations. So the flow is both ways. But the key fact is that there are many stories that I highlight in the report across the country where where these officers have become known to the public. Um, but in many of those cases, that involvement was known to the police department sometimes for years before they took any action, only in the face of, of public outrage about the, the affiliation. Well, you know, on, on one hand, this explains a lot because there are things that I, you know, George Floyd is obviously one example of it, but also, um, you know, shooting the guy in Kenosha seven times in the back and all that stuff. I mean, you think about that. Everybody's got a camera now. Why in God's name would you do something like that? You know, you're going to get caught besides the fact that it's indecent to do and it's murder aside from that. So so on one hand, this explains a lot. On the other hand, this sounds like an Internet conspiracy theory. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's what's happened. The police have been infiltrated by Klansmen or white supremacists or whatever. If you weren't a former FBI guy, I might think that you're just, you know, a conspiracy guy. But, I, you know, you, you, have, you have the credibility with me 
to know this must be true. It just seems so outrageous to me and, and just over the top preposterous. Can you can you how can this be? Uh, sure. So so it, it, it would not have been preposterous in the 1960s. Right. It was generally accepted that uh, the police departments and groups like the Ku Klux Klan work hand in glove. And that was true across the country. Uh, you know, we forget. And this is something I learned working uh, undercover with white supremacist groups is, is that, you know, the, the foundation of our nation was based on, on, on the uh, uh, white supremacist ideology, right? The European colonization of the quote unquote new world. Uh, they, those weren't new worlds. They were worlds that people populated. Uh, but these white supremacist ideologies uh, were used to justify European domination of uh, these countries and, and a genocide of the indigenous populations that lived there. So understanding how white supremacist ideology influenced the creation of our nation and particularly policing, you know, some of the first police public policing agencies in, in the United States were slave patrols. And, you know, obviously once slavery was ended, Jim Crow laws were put in effect in the South and, and police enforced those laws, those white supremacist laws. And even outside the South, there were sundown towns where formal and informal uh, regulations were written that people of color could not stay overnight in a particular town. So it was police who enforced those white supremacist laws. Yeah. Uh, so this structural racism is still a big part of our criminal justice system and there are efforts made to to uh examine that and when the justice department does a pattern and practice investigation they often require police departments to undergo implicit bias training but what they neglect to, to include is a discussion of the explicit bias that remains that there still are uh pe people in law enforcement on a spectrum some of whom who, who just express racist ideas and engage in racist behavior uh, but some others who actually join racist groups or affiliate with these far right militant groups that may claim that they're not racist, uh, but still are engaged in uh, improper criminal conduct, uh, expressing their point of view. So it remains a problem that that, as the report suggests, it's hidden in plain sight. Obviously, yeah. the FBI knows about it. <laughs> they warn their agents about it. Yeah, they so, just don't do anything to protect the public. So growing up. Uh, as as an African-American man who grew up in the South and uh, grew up in part during the 60s, I'm very familiar with this Jim Crow connection between the police and white supremacists. And a part of the reason why I wanted to have you on this program, I saw your a piece that was written about your piece and uh, forwarded it to Chris and said, we have to have this, this gentleman on, in part because I wanted to ask you a question. As someone who has been inside of these types of groups, you know, back in your early in your FBI career, I, I really want to know what drives police officers um, or and or people in these groups to do what they do. Why would what is I mean, what is the what are the talking points that, you know, they give as reasoning for doing this other than just hate? Uh, well, again, it goes back to these philosophies and sometimes theologies. You know, there were a number of, of theologies that were used to justify 
the the white subjugation of indigenous populations, uh, something that was called British Israelism that in the United States is called Christian identity. So these these ideologies suggest the natural order uh, of the universe uh, places white people in a hierarchy above other races and that system existed for hundreds of years as the United States developed as the most powerful country in the world. And they attribute that to the success of the white supremacy ideology and the the challenge in the 1960s that uh, created uh, uh, civil rights in in law through the Civil Rights Act uh, is this strange experiment to them in multiculturalism and every problem in the world is is a result of that experiment and what we need to do is go back to the 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 uh ideologies and theologies that uh uh were used when when uh the the uh country was was growing that they think were the were the the uh motivation for for that growth um so it's it's a very let me i i'm i'm so jj's real familiar with this i'm the white guy that grew up in the midwest and i'm not and i i understand what you're saying about the 1950s and 1960s in fact i recently read a book uh about that uh, time period and what was going on at that in that time period talking about the slave patrols and all that stuff just just read something about that but this is 2020 uh, assuming that a police officer today is around 40 years old some a little older some a little younger but let's say that they were born in 1980 therefore um <laughs> you know this is not exactly reconstruction time this is modern times in 1980 when they were born. so why would this this theory still be there among people that were born 40 years ago, not a hundred years ago. I, I just don't get it. I'm sorry. Uh, well, if you were in the Midwest, there were some, probably some town towns around you that were sundown towns when you uh, were growing up. Uh, uh, there's a book out and I'm trying to think of the author's name and I'm blanking on it right now. Love it. I think or love L. Uh, who wrote a book called Sundown Towns that, that he did research into this. And these were all across the country. They weren't just in the South. Um, but that structural racism still exists today, right? I mean, if you go and, and look at Congress, it's disproportionately white. If, if you look at police departments, they're disproportionately white. If you look at corporate boards, they're disproportionately white. If you look at prisons, they're disproportionately black and brown. That's That's not just an accident that that is part of the structural racism that still infects everyday decisions that that people make in this country and particularly influence the law. So in the criminal justice process, from who gets stopped to who gets searched to who gets arrested to how they get charged to how they get sentenced to how they get punishment to police use of force all have racial disparities that are persistent. This has been known for decades now. Mr. German, that's precisely where I wanted to go with this. Kenosha, Wisconsin, not long ago, and I think I read some of that in connection with the material that was put out, uh, maybe one of the news publications that wrote about your story talked about this, and I recall seeing a scene in Kenosha uh, where uh, an individual from Illinois had uh, essentially shot some people 
And uh, it was a white individual walking down the street with this weapon slung around his shoulder right past police. Police did nothing. In, in, in this, right. And, and particularly police responding to a shooting. So you, you'd think that they're, they would be on alert. I mean, it's really shocking. And, and even from a police safety point of view, put aside the racial issues, you would let somebody with a rifle walk past you. So you past believe the police lines. Do you believe that this uh, ideology and uh, I guess the vestiges of it that you're, you've been talking about is the part of the reason why that took place? Absolutely. And, 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 you know, I've been watching this all across the country at, at these uh, white supremacist and, and far right militant rallies that have been held that have devolved into violence where, you know, we, we've got become accustomed to seeing this very aggressive, militarized police response to Black Lives Matter protests or to Standing Rock water protector protests uh, that are absent at these much more violent uh, rallies where people have been stabbed and shot and not just no police response to, to the shooting, but even afterwards, very little. I, I mean, look at at the disrupt J-20 protest in, in Washington, D.C., the day after the President Trump was inaugurated. Right. Uh, uh, you know, a, a number of hundreds of people came out to protest. And uh, when some windows were broken, the police cordoned off an entire block and arrested 230 people who happened to be standing on the same block where windows were broken and charged them all with federal felonies. And yet six months later, Charlottesville happened where people are in, involved in interpersonal violence, beating people bloody and in one case, killing people. And one federal arrest resulted from that protest. And it wasn't until a year later when when some really uh, aggressive investigative journalists uh, produced a documentary on Frontline about the Rise Above movement that the federal government was finally moved uh, to charge members of that group who the journalists had documented going from protest to protest across the country, engaging in violence and then promoting themselves in social media for the violence they're committing at these protests. And yet somehow the FBI was not paying attention to any of that. I mean, there were people in Charlottesville who had previously been convicted of domestic terrorism by the FBI who committed violence in public, who had gone to prison, come out, and were committing, committing violence in public in Charlottesville who were never arrested. Well, you know, I, I thought things were getting better, and now I find myself sitting here in sort of just disbelief. The one thing about doing, I don't know, we've done about 15 or 16 of these programs, is that I learn something every week. Um, you know, it's like peeling the onion. And, you know, you've added another layer to my understanding. I'm just, it's depressing to me. Um, there are a lot of, I, I, there are a number of black police chiefs that we have had in major cities, how do they allow it to go on? Um, I think a lot of it is, you know, clearly it's not a, anywhere near a majority of police officers. It, it's a small minority, uh, perhaps even a tiny minority that would actually affiliate themselves with, uh, with racist groups uh, or far right militant groups. Um, but it's known that some do. And that's really the problem is that they were addressing these persistent racial disparities in policing uh, 
to some unconscious bias without acknowledging that there is conscious bias that still exists. And, um, you know, my report comes out uh, two years after the 2015 counterterrorism policy uh, was leaked, uh, more than 10 years after the 2006 uh, FBI warning about the infiltration of white supremacists, you know, it shouldn't be shocking. This is something everyone's known. Nobody wants to look at it. And if you don't look at it, you can't address it forthrightly. So I hope my report is, is at least bringing a focus to this problem so that as we look at uh, fixing the racial issues uh, in, the, in the entire country and particularly in policing, we're, we're at least acknowledging that this remains a problem. Mr. Mr. German, um, you know, uh, what you're saying, I understand where Chris is coming from. This is disheartening. Um, But what I hear you saying, too, though, is that this is something hopeful. There's some hope in this, too, because we're actually putting a light on this. You were willing to come forward and say what you said, even though you knew that this was, uh, you know, there would be questions about it. And but as Chris said earlier, your background you know, your credibility is there and we're grateful for this. So I want to ask this question, though, you know, looking at some of the places where you have said um, this takes this is going on in Alabama, California, Connecticut, Florida, Illinois, Louisiana, Michigan, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Oregon, Texas, Virginia, Washington, West Virginia and elsewhere. What does that tell you, even if it is a small minority of police departments where this activity is taking place, what does that tell you about the problem that we have, and how does that inform a solution? Uh, well, what I hope it tells you is that that kind of the traditional notion of white supremacy in the United States isn't accurate, right? This idea that okay, this is a couple of diehard Southerners. Uh, who, who uh, aren't well educated and uh, are on the fringe of society, or some, you know, tattooed skinhead who who uh, is is just got some fringe conspiracy theories in his head. Uh, that this is actually a persistent problem within our entire society, and uh, law enforcement recruits from that society and. And therefore, you're going to have the same problems you see in society and law enforcement. The only problem is we give these police officers a gun and a badge and they have an awful lot of discretion to use their authority in ways they choose or not use it. I mean, one of the things we also often see and is is too little of a, a, a discussion point in the defund the police argument is, is that uh, half of the violent crime in this country never gets solved. And that's a problem that's been worsening over the years. And, and the, the communities that that uh, failure uh, falls on are t- tend to be communities of color. So um, when, when people talk about, you know, well, the police are necessary to prevent violent crime, they're not doing it. Um, you know, it's fascinating that the violent crime rates in the United States have dropped precipitously since the bad old days of the 1990s. Um, but even as the homicide rate, for example, has dropped since the early 1990s to, to record lows over the last couple of years, 
the clearance rate, the rate at which the police solve those crimes, has dropped as well. So even though there are far fewer homicides, far fewer are being solved. So, and it's often, uh, as I said, victims of color whose cases aren't solved. So we have to have a more fulsome discussion of what the police do in these communities and why, so we can understand what reforms are necessary. That's very interesting. I, I um, thank you a lot for coming on. I, again, I <laughs> JJ sees some hope. I'm sorry, I've seen dark clouds. That just uh, well, very yeah, I do hear, see. But... I, I do see hope, and and we'll let you go, Mr. German. But I just want to say this: something you said that I was already thinking about is that. Yes, this is a white supremacist issue, but it's less white than it is supremacist in my head. Uh, I, I think there's a lot to that. And, and you know, it, it's hard, again, uh, getting the language right, because I think it is broader. And, and you know, uh, uh, the white supremacist groups that I worked in the 19 in the early 1990s started calling themselves militias in the late 1990s, uh, trying to uh, escape the uh, the, the negative image of carrying around a Nazi flag in the United States and instead pick up an American flag and call themselves patriots, but had the same ideas or similar ideas. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that makes it a little bit harder because, it, well, none of us uh, question uh, that a police officer shouldn't be affiliating with the uh, Ku Klux Klan. A lot of these groups are brand new. They have new names that we haven't heard before. Uh, the history of violence isn't as well documented. So it, it, it creates a challenge for law enforcement leaders and, and law enforcement officers to know what groups are, are problematic and one, what aren't. But the problem is we're not paying enough attention to that to really explain it. And we've seen recently, for example, at the Department of Homeland Security, where the leaders there were, were uh, forcing the intelligence officers to take white supremacy out as a threat, to, to, to downplay it as a threat, and to instead, for political reasons, allege other groups are more threatening. Anti-fascists are somehow more, more of a problem than actual fascists. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, I, I fall right in between with you that, you know, th- there's definitely some dark clouds right now. Uh, but the only way we get to the light is is by shining light on the issue and making sure we're we're focused on what is the real problem and and correcting it. And you, so that's what we try to do every week on yes. these podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Uh, Michael Thanks so German. much for having me. I really appreciate it. Good to have you on. Yeah, you've done exactly that. Thank you for being with us. You're listening to Colors. I'm Liz, uh, originally from Los Angeles, now living in the D.C. area. I think we've made so much progress in this country when it comes to race, but we'll never be all we can be as a country until we grapple with the history of codified racism and bigotry and um, how they have these little persistent tendrils that still affect us today. Um, Yes, those tendrils affect even good people who have never owned other human beings or who have never been enslaved. When it comes to race, we can do better. And we all have to take it upon ourselves to do our own internal work. And that work, it ain't for the lazy. 
Hey, my name is Rajesh. I'm American, but my race is mixed with Indian and Hispanic. And my current location is Ohio. So what is my view on the race in America? Well, America today has not built an infrastructure for minorities to work under efficiently. Yeah, we're not there yet. But keep in mind, many other countries are dealing with the same racist problem. The question is, which country can be intellectual enough to celebrate the differences as an opportunity? Like an opportunity for growth rather than a threat. I'm hoping that the US will lead in equality, showing an example for the rest of the world. And that's my view. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Well, I, I'm sorry if I got into a little bit of a funk there with uh, Mr. German, but it just what he said was so um, appalling to me. And I, again, as I said, this the the light that we're shedding, a lot of it falls on me because I this is just stuff that I've been oblivious to my whole life, and um, it's very interesting. So I'm glad we had him on as a guest. We we have a an email address if those of you who listen would like to contact us. It's the colors podcast, the colors podcast at gmail.com. and we got an email uh, from uh, a listener. Who took issue with you about some stuff that you said? And I don't want to read the whole thing because it's very angry and kind of mean spirited letter. But in the end, she said something like, JJ, you have canceled your black card. Well, first of all, uh, I was unaware that there was a black card. And uh, second of all, let me just say that no one has ever said the words, you have canceled your white card. What the heck is a black card? And why don't am I supposed to have a white card? I, I, I just I don't really understand. Can you explain this to me or is this a mystery to you as well? Well, let's just put it in context. And no, it's not a mystery, Chris. And, you know, people hate comes in all forms. It comes from all different types of people. And, you know, no one should operate under the illusion that hate only comes from white people or hate only comes from any one race. Anybody can be hateful. And we've talked about that before. This business about disagreeing with somebody uh, is okay. I think that's a great thing to do if you disagree with somebody. But, you know, it, it gives us an opportunity to, uh, you know, to discuss things that when we disagree with people. But if you disagree with somebody and you just want to destroy them because they disagree with you, call them names and and you know insinuate things like that that is just that's hateful and it well, is, is it just like is it like saying oh you're 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 not you're not being black enough or something like that i mean it, i again we don't you know the thing is we don't on this show and i certainly in my life don't elevate people who make assumptions and say things like that to a point where it warrants some kind of answer or some kind of solution because it's illogical, first of all. Nobody nobody has that. Nobody has these cards. So just to, to, to go through this and try to uh, justify somebody using that, that, that approach is just it's useless to me. No, you don't have a white card. No, I don't have a black one. And no, you never heard it before. Um, I have heard ridiculous things like that before. But it's not something that we waste time on because there are people out there who are need hurting, who are hurting and who needs some kind of solution to the problems that we face uh, from the, the racial tension that besets this country. And comments like that are just a part of the problem. 
Yeah, again, it gets back to, again, one of the places that I'm stuck, and we've, we've talked about this uh, over several episodes, is I don't have a need to identify. I am, I'm Chris. Um, my skin color happens to be white. Um, I, my choice of religion is Catholic. Um, I'm married. I have a kid. But I'm, I'm, just, I'm just me. I don't, I don't feel a need to be part of a tribe of any kind. And, you know, maybe that's that's the difference. Maybe there is some uh, some people feel like they have to be part of a tribe. Heck, that might explain even what Mr. German was talking about is the screwballs that get in with the police think that they have to be part of a tribe and their tribe is white supremacy. I mean, I, I guess I just don't feel a need for that. And I don't think you you do either. I've known you a long time. Again, you know, people have all kinds of ideas, Chris, and, you know, we, I certainly am not in a position to to determine what you know to classify these thoughts and, and what people are trying to achieve or, or what they do. I mean, different people have different things that float their boats. But I can tell you this much: some of the things that float some people's boats are downright dangerous. And engaging in uh, hateful activities, whether it's out on the streets or whether it's in you know, in, in the daylight or whether it's in the dark of night or whether it's bullying on the Internet or, you know, whatever your 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 method of choice is, is just not a good thing. And it's not what we do here. And this kind of thing is something that we just basically put in its place. And I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. But, you know, some stuff you just have to look at it and go, really? And just move on. Yeah. All right, uh, folks, uh, thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, again, if you want to write to us, we're at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please tell your friends and neighbors uh, about it. Uh, we're available every week right here, wherever you found us this time. We'll be, we'll be back next week as well. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Yes, I was hired because I was black. That's the first line of the first in a series of columns from The Washington Post's personal finance columnist, Michelle Singletary. I wanted to reach to people who could make a difference in maybe their hiring decisions or the pe- their co-workers or policymakers who can understand the depth of racism that still exists in this country. A profound look at race-based affirmative action. Some of what you hear will probably open your eyes. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Well, it's time to go again. Before we do, I want to say thank you. Mike Jakaitis, Robin Terry, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Greg Stressel, Beth Gibbs, Kathleen Floyd, Deanna Howell, Hagar Chamali, Kyle Cooper, Del Walters, Hillary Howard, Sean Anderson, Melissa Howell, Beth Gibbs, Thomas Warren, and for the music, Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Patrick Patrickios. And most of all, thank you for listening. And remember, keep talking to each other.
You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.